Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. I'm Robert Winfrey. I am your host for the show. Uh, I'd like to start off by potentially apologizing in advance for <laughs> any quality issues that might arise on this episode. Uh, I tweaked my lower back slash hip slash the left side of my leg, well, my left leg. And while it's, I'm not as in as I'm not in as much pain as I was a few days ago. It's still a little dicey, <laughs> so if I sound a little bit odd, uh, I I'm blaming the pain because that's it. even if that's that's what I'm blaming. I'm blaming the pain. Leave it at that. Uh, okay, on the agenda this particular episode, we've got a fair. A uh, number of things to talk about. A review of last night's card. That was an odd card. Some really good high points, but some really dull stuff, too. Uh, next week, actually, this coming Saturday, rather, UFC 252, the trilogy between Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic, comes to a close. Daniel Cormier talking about this being his last fight, and I we'll get to that. We'll get to that when we talk about that fight a little bit. Uh, I put it this way: I tend to think he is being—he is more honest than not when he says that. Uh, there were some fight announcements, the bit of roster cleaning on a few different sides. Uh, so yeah, we'll be touching on bunches of that little stuff this particular episode. All right, let's go ahead and jump into this from yesterday: UFC on ESPN plus thirty-two. Your main event, Derek Lewis. Uh, he defeats Alexi Olenek via TKO, 21 seconds of the second round. I think I said all I wanted for this fight was for it not to go long, and thankfully it didn't. Uh, first round a little bit back and forth, but Lewis hit a couple of takedowns off of clinches. But Olenek was able to sweep him fairly easily. And then got on top in side control for a big chunk, especially to close out the round. He tried that scarf hold, uh, you know, chest compressor, neck compressor, neck crank thing. And he had it for a little bit, and apparently it got kind of tight, but... Uh, at the very end of the round, he decided, okay, enough of this, I'm going to attack the forearm with uh, an Americana. Which seemed to have a little bit more promise as far as an attack goes. Uh, the reality about stuff like that scarf hold, uh, the Ezekiel choke, it's just not going to work on a certain level of opposition. And Derek Lewis is good enough to not necessarily be tapped out by a scarf hold neck crank. Uh, so he... I mean, and the sad thing is, it was a real opportunity to finish there if Olenek had gone to a more, a higher percentage submission attack. Because he's, again, he's on top in side control, and Derek Lewis is laying there. I mean, Lewis's corner is kind of screaming at him, get your hips going, get moving, and he's just, nah, I'm going to lay here, kind of feeling okay. If Olenek had attacked with a more, again, a, a higher percentage attack... I mean, even the Americana is a higher percentage than the chest compressor. Or if he gets some knees to the body, because Lewis is a little soft to the body, 
You try to induce some movement, get his back. Uh, Lewis, while a lot of people have marveled in the past at his ability to get up from side control, the way he does it always exposes his back. And he's able to get away with it because it's heavyweight, and the number of people who will actually take your back in transition at heavyweight is kind of limited to Fabricio Verdum. A little bit of Daniel Cormier. I mean, that, that's kind of that's how Cormier eventually finished their fight. He got him down. He was pounding on him. Lewis stood up, gave up his back. Cormier didn't get really the hooks in, but he took his back in kind of the more traditional, in the most technical sense of the term. He was on his back. Got the choke. Finished him. That sequence is always there on Derek Lewis from that position because of how he chooses to get up. There's just not a lot of people in that division who are actually going to capitalize on it. Uh, second round, uh, Lewis comes out with a big flying knee, kind of hits the chest, follows it up with a punch, drops Olenek, finishes him off on the ground with uh, punches. Uh, this gives Derek Lewis sole possession of the top spot for most TKO finishes in UFC heavyweight history. He's, I think, he's, I think tied in second for most finishes all-time in UFC heavyweight history. Frank Mir still holds that particular top spot. Um, I don't know what is necessarily going to happen next for all parties concerned here. The heavyweight division... Well, Olenek is going to keep doing what he's been doing, right? He's never going to be top-of-the-food chain guy at heavyweight, but because it's heavyweight, he's he's a good guy to hang around kind of for spots like this until he chooses to retire, or it becomes ethically and medically inadvisable for him to continue, and I don't think he's there yet. Um, I don't, again, heavyweight's in a weird spot because there's so much that's going to change this time next week, right? The wake of UFC 252 is going to be incredibly revelatory for the future of the heavyweight division. I have occasionally joked that after 252, the UFC should just close heavyweight because they are going to, assuming Cormier is sincere in his desire to be done after this, they're losing, depending on who you ask, either 50 or 33% of their good fighters. Heavyweight is not a very interesting division. It's not a division where a lot of very interesting things happen. And Derek Lewis's success is kind of a giant, a huge piece of evidence to that fact. So there's a lot that's going to be, that's really up in the air until after UFC 252. Uh, Post-fight, Lewis said he doesn't want to fight again until he gets down to about 240. Uh, he came in at 265 for this, but I think one of the things he mentioned was he didn't really have to cut weight, which he normally does. So, he wants to get his weight down even lower before he fights again. And I think he mentioned December as kind of a somewhat realistic goal for that. Uh, that's, you know, four months. And doesn't seem unreasonable if his big if his big indicator is going to be I'm going to lose 20 pounds. Uh doable. That's doable. Um, again, as for what's next, there's so much that hinges on 252. I don't think Lewis is going to be your next title challenger. 
that just doesn't really seem like the next play. I tend to think no matter what happens between Cormier and Stipe, the next fight is going to be Stipe and Nganu 2 for the belt. If Cormier wins and retires, they'll do Stipe and Nganu for the vacant belt. If Stipe wins, I, I know a lot of people are still, myself included, still look at Francis a little bit like, eh, can you really do anything to change up how Stipe handled you the first time? But, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to blame Francis for kind of smashing peop- the people in front of him if they're not good enough to implement parts of the same game plan that Stipe did, then that's not Francis's fault. He's beating the guys in front of him. But, so, I, I think Francis is probably the next guy. Um, if it's not, now, again, some of this will be again, dependent on who wins, how they win, and the ever-present issue of just who's available. The UFC might want to do Stipe versus Ngannou for the vacant belt or for Stipe's belt, and then Stipe falls out, at which point you're left with uh, some different options. Um, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I wouldn't really hate Lewis versus Ngannou too, which that fight was so bad. There, that that Lewis and Ganu fight was so so bad. There was only one fight worse than that all year that I saw, and that was uh, CM Punk versus Mike Jackson. That's how bad Lewis and Ganu was. The only thing worse was a fight that was basically two amateurs. Uh, I was so bad, but. It's been a few years. Uh, you know, both men have made some alterations. I I don't hate it. That's kind of the best way I can say that. But I also do think that the UFC is looking at Nganu and kind of going, okay, you're the next title challenger. Uh, which, uh, I mean, I think the only thing you can do with Francis right now is kind of rematches. It's either a rematch with Stipe, a rematch with Lewis, potentially. Um, I don't know. The top of... Heavy, again, heavyweight's a weird division. It's just a weird division to try and get your hands around because there's... There's just not a lot of good heavyweights. There's not a lot of good heavyweight fights. And we're getting into rematch territory for some of these guys that have been able to be good enough to stick around the top 10-ish for a couple of years now. Um, I th- Curtis Blades said he wanted to fight Derek Lewis. He called him out. Um, the UFC is not pleased with Derek Blades for a couple of reasons. Uh, I mean, there's the reason that Dana White will tell you, and then there's the truth. White's excuse for being mad at Curtis Blades is his fight with Volkov wasn't very good. Wasn't a very good fight. I don't think there's too much argument about that. 
But the real reason he's pissed at uh, Curtis Blades is Curtis Blades talked about fighter pay in the lead-up to the Volkov fight. And Dana hates people who talk about fighter pay in a serious manner in any sense other than I personally want more, right? Any fighter that just says, yeah, I want more, Dana kind of shrugs it off and goes, yeah, who doesn't want more? And then negotiations go on behind the scenes. Anybody who kind of does the collective bargaining sort of argument, Dana really doesn't like that. And that's kind of the tune Curtis Blades was singing going into that Volkov fight. So between a very lackluster fight and Blades kind of, you know, poking at a sore spot for the UFC, they're not very thrilled with him. They might give him Derek Lewis in an effort to have Lewis kind of end the run that uh, Blades is currently on. And, I mean, by the same token, if Blades goes out and and beats Derek Lewis, he he's not that far from the belt. He just isn't, because heavyweight is what it is. So, that's a, that is a possibility. And I tend to think it's probably the most realistic one uh, kind of going right now. Again, if you look at heavyweight, you have uh, Rosenstroik and Junior Dos Santos are going to fight at UFC 252. Overeem still kind of hanging out there in the ether, but... I mean, you could do Overeem and Lewis, but... Eh, I don't know. It feels more like Overeem is kind of on permanent standby right now for the heavyweight title scene. Um, I mean, that said, I would not, I wouldn't object to Overeem and Lewis. Uh, both men kind of jawed a little bit about that... O- Lewis claimed that Overeem turned down a fight with him a few times. Uh, Lewis it, Overeem denies that, so I, I don't know. They're both they're both fighters. They're both full of crap. All fighters are. Uh, so, for Lu, point being, for Lewis, he's probably got another win at least before the title is kind of realistically an option for him. I mean, that said, you know, a few people could test positive for COVID, somebody could get injured, and suddenly we're stuck trying to throw together what we can for the top of the heavyweight division, and Lewis is just kind of there, so I don't know. Again, a lot's up in the air until tomorrow, or next week, not tomorrow, until Saturday. All right, co-main event, Chris Weidman defeated Omar Yakhmedov via unanimous decision, 229-27s, 129-28. I can see the 29-27. That gives Weidman a 10-8 third. And given how long he had mount, that's probably fair. Um, This fight sucked. I don't really have anything else to say about that. Weidman had a pretty good first round, mostly based around trying really hard to wrestle and not get hit. That bet... The style of Akhmedov benefits that game plan because Akhmedov is not a very sophisticated striker. He tends to swing somewhat wild hooks and overhands. And they're a little bit easier to avoid. He still hit Weidman a few times. Second round, Akhmedov takes Weidman down a handful of times. Uh, It's Akhmedov's round. Third round, Weidman comes out, engages in some wall install early, gets a takedown, secures, again, mount, where he just kind of hangs out for most of the round. Um... This was not a performance that should instill confidence in you as a viewer. If you're, if we're talking about Chris Weidman's future, he did not have anywhere near the tech, 
Weidman, even some of his losses recently, showed bits and pieces of real technical ability. And watch the Romero, uh, the fight with Yoel Romero. He looks really good for that first round. He looks really good. I gave Romero the second, but a much closer round. He, and he was still looking good. The Jacare fight. First round or so, he's moving around. He's stinging Jacare with the jab. He looks really good. And then he just can't maintain it. And his chin is a little bit suspect. And this fight, I don't know. I mean, the man needed a win, all right? Let's, setting aside my beliefs about where he, stin- where he sits in the division, he desperately needed a win. I mean, I saw on Twitter the man was one loss away from a Bellator middleweight title shot, uh, which is probably accurate. Uh, but this was not an especially inspiring performance. He still slowed down as the fight wore on. He still there's still questions around his chin. He just fought a guy who was a favorable stylistic matchup in that respect. Uh, yeah, I don't know where he goes from here. He says he wants to make another run. I'm sure he wants to make another run. But I, I did not see anything here that leads me to believe that's a realistic possibility. I mean, he beat... Uh, Akhmedov was ranked number 10? 11. So he'll probably be in around that spot. I mean, here's the real question, right? If we look at the top of the middleweight division, I'm going to start with the I'm going to start at the top and go down to Akhmedov. Okay, we have champion Israel Adesanya, followed by in order Robert Whitaker, Paulo Costa, Jared Cannonier, Jack Hermanson, Yoel Romero, Darren Till, Derek Brunson, Kelvin Gastelum, Uriah Hall, Edmund Shabazian, and then Akhmedov. How many of those people do you favor him to beat? I mean, I know he has the win over Gastelum, but let's not pretend he didn't get floored at the end of that first round. <laughs> I mean, look, Gastelum at this point is just inconsistent enough. He Weidman might beat him again. But, you know, would you favor him over Shabazian? Shabazian, Shabazian hits hard. And Weidman doesn't really have the kind of aggression in terms of really going to get into the clinch and get into your face that uh, Derek Brunson used to take him and down a peg. Uh, how about Uriah Hall? Winnable, again, you look at some of these and you go, you know, Weidman that is on a good day, near his best, sure, I favor him in, in a lot of these fights. How confident are you in his ability to be at his best, though? I, I mean, in all honesty, I think I'd favor Darren Till to beat him. I don't know that his chin can hold up, and Darren Till is really, really good about Finding your chin with straight punches. Uh, Derek Brunson. You favor Weidman to beat that guy? I'm not. I wouldn't. So I. I just. I don't know. I. But he got a win. Good for him. Uh, I mean, that's for Akhmedov. I don't know. The guy just kind of. This is his first loss in a long time. But the man had, despite a good winning streak, the man had just no momentum. I imagine he'll hang around for a little bit still. Uh, but, yeah, it wasn't a very good fight. 
Uh, another middleweight fight. Darren Stewart defeated Maki Patolo via guillotine choke, 341 of the first. If you're into kind of the specifics of how he got this, this was a cool finish. Uh, you had Patolo holding a high crotch single leg kind of against the fence. One of the things Stewart is using to defend is kind of like a wrestler's grovet, which you can, if you, if you're curious about my terminology there, you can look that up. It's a little bit like a cross face, but from the kind of the front headlock position. And Patolo starts with his head inside. As he goes to his he- to the head outside single, that opens up the area for Stewart to slip the arm under the chin. As they go down, he grabs the guillotine. He adjusts, and this is a this is not an arm in guillotine. So they go down. He goes to the high elbow variation. As uh, Patolo tries to roll to his back, he rolls with him, pins him against the fence, and then switches his grip again to the power guillotine, which is kind of like the the ideal rear naked choke grip. So it's choking arm around the chin, hand on your own bicep. Only instead of being around behind them, their che- their head is in your chest. Uh, or kind of under your arm. And you've got them cinched up like that. So very, very... There's, there's a lot of power in that particular configuration. And got the tap. I, good win for Stewart. Stewart's had a real up and down run. I mean, his UFC career started off, I think, 0-3. Uh, sorry, yeah, 0-3 with one no contest. Um, yeah, he's, I mean, that said, he's on a decent enough run now. He fought Edmund Shabazi into a split decision that could have gone his way. I mean, I didn't think so, but the fact that it was split tends, I, and I haven't rewatched the fight long enough to potentially yell at the judging over that. But good win for Stewart, uh, he and Patolo both kind of occupy the same space. They're good fighters, but they're just there to kind of have action performances rather than to really kind of be guys at the top of the division. Um, Yana Kunitskaya defeated uh, Julia Stolyarenko via unanimous decision. 130 30-26, 2-30-27s. Uh, I was 30-26. Stoliarenko just had no answer for Kunitskaya getting her on the clinch and pushing her to the fence. And this wasn't this wasn't wall install in the kind of derogatory sense. Kunitskaya got a body lock, drove Stoliarenko into the fence, kept her there and beat her up. A lot of knees, a lot of short elbows and again, if you are not doing anything with the position, then you're stalling. Kunitskaya was doing things, and Stoliarenko was basically helpless. She had no... I don't know if she only knew one trick for that situation, and Kunitskaya shut her down. I don't know if that's not a position she drills a lot. I don't know if there's just enough of a physical strength discrepancy that she couldn't do anything. I don't know the specifics. I know that she had no answer for that position. Just none. Uh, other than that, not a very interesting fight. Uh, kicking off the main card, oh boy. Benil Daryush knocked out Scott Holtzman with a spinning back fist at 438 of the first. Um, good grief. <laughs> Benil Daryush post-fight uh, during his interview said, uh, you know, I don't know what happened. I didn't, I didn't used to be like this. He's referencing the kind of fighter he is. Um... 
these two had a, for as long as it lasted, it was a good fight. Uh, Holtzman was kind of holding his own for a bit, but eventually got tagged. Uh, and Daryush, the man trains at King's MMA with Rafael Cordero. Rafael Cordero's training methodologies, as most training methodologies, have pluses and minuses, right? He advocates a lot of very, very hard sparring. Uh, I mean, he was the he was the coach of the original Shootbox. So the you, know, you look at the guys he produced back in the day: you know, Vanderlei Silva, Shogun, Ninja, uh, Anderson Silva was there for a little bit. I he just he produces a lot of that. A lot of guys with good killer instinct because you spar hard a lot. If Daryush hurts you, he is good about finding the finish. And this was a really nice spinning back fist. Uh, just, I think, the eighth in UFC history. So, uh, good win for Daryush. There is a bit of a caveat, not on the performance necessarily, but Daryush did miss weight. Uh, he weighed 158 for this fight. Uh I, given the state of the world, I'm willing to give a lot of guys kind of some passes on weight gaffs at the moment. Uh, one of the, I think I don't remember if it was him or someone else who had issues making weight because uh, there were there were people on other people on this card who even if they made weight kind of struggled. I think he said something about you know, you know we had portable saunas that we used to kind of try and make weight and those are just not as good as regular saunas. So just given the state of the world, eh, I'm willing to give guys a little bit of a pass as far as how I personally think about them. Uh, this is also the first time he'd ever missed weight, and Darius has been fighting... Jeez, how long has he been fighting? Darius debuted professionally in 2009, so 11 years. Uh, he's been in the UFC since 2014. So over an 11-year career... Six of those in six of those years in the UFC. Over six years in the UFC, he debuted in January of fourteen. So yeah, to have one during a pan in no small part, I think, because of the pandemic. Yeah, you get a little bit of a pass. It stays there, and it, you you keep it in mind. But uh, I'm only going to be so critical of people who struggle to make weight at the moment. Especially if they have a long history of not having problems making it. Uh, good win for Daryush. I think that's that poor guy. Some of it's just because lightweight is such a stacked division. But Daryush has now won five in a row. This was number five. He has finished four of those. Uh, of those four finishes, bonused in three. Would have bonused here if he'd made weight. And he still came into this fight ranked number 14. Now, again, some of this is lightweight is a ridiculously stacked division. Fair enough. But Darius went from having a good run to uh, getting knocked out by Edson Barboza. Okay, fair enough. I mean, he looked really good in that fight, too, up until he got caught. Fought to a draw with Evan Dunham. 
And then the knockout loss to Alexander Hernandez, and that's really the one that's still kind of... That is still an albatross around his neck. Five fights later. Five wins, four finishes. That's still kind of hanging over his head for some reason. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Donald Cerrone, ranked number thir- uh, ranked 13th. Um, yeah, again, par- Ally Aquenta at 9. Dayush is better than Ally Aquenta, right? We can all kind of agree on this. Uh, it's Part of it is just lightweight's a tough division. And everybody knows it's tough, so no one wants to give opportunities to guys below them if they can help it. So, Ally Aquenta's rating looks better because, one, he has a couple of wins over Kevin Lee, but he's also fought some of the upper-tier guys, so he's slightly more prevalent in the minds of people making you know, who do the rankings, or the UFC brass who influences the people making the rankings, however you want to look at it. Uh... Whereas, you know, Daryush has been beating unranked opponents. Actually, uh, Dober is ranked now. But, I mean, his current winning streak is Tiago Moises, Drew Dober, Frank Camacho, Drucar Close, Scott Holtzman. Close and Holtzman, he knocked out. He submitted Camacho and Dober. I mean, <laughs> those are all tough, tough fighters. And the man still barely... His ranking might not even change after this. Uh, Lightweight. It is both great and a giant pain in the butt. As for the prelims, Tim Means defeated Loriano Staropoli via unanimous decision, 30-27 to 29-28. This was the fun little brawl we all kind of expected it to be. Staropoli missed weight. And he struggled a little bit with... uh, the smaller cage I don't think helped him it helped Means and he struggled a little bit with some of the straight punching of Means as well as Means' commitment to the clinch I mean the third round is just Means basically getting the clinch as fast as he can and then keeping it and he much like Kunitskaya he's not just holding on for dear life he is working but it's a it's very clearly a tactical consideration okay I might be up two rounds, or it might be 1-1, so I must win this round. I'm going to just do what I can to win the round. Uh, again, enjoyable fight, though. Uh, Kevin Holland t- knocked out Joaquin Buckley in the, at 32 seconds of the third. Uh, Holland has become a really kind of tough guy to deal with. He's very, very tall and very long for the division. He's good about finding straight punches. He's not unbeatable, but he's a pretty serious test. Uh, Buckley kept trying to swing hooks, uh, and he just struggled to find the chin, didn't really adjust to go to the body in time, uh, and then even going to the body, did a lot of running into... uh, Holland would retreat with... Kind of a sl- like a little bit of the Philly shell. I th- uh, forgive me if my terminology is wrong. So that's rear hand up, kind of by your face as you shoulder roll. Lead hand low to kind of protect your body. Instead, of, uh, it works very well in boxing because kidney punches in boxing are against the rules. They're not an MMA. Uh, it's actually a big weakness of the shoulder roll in general as it pertains to MMA because the shoulder roll is 
it's still a great thing to do, but you do expose your kidneys, and getting hit in the kidney is an incredibly miserable experience. Uh, Buckley didn't really kind of pick up on that opportunity for offense, and eventually just kind of ran into the 1-2 here of Holland, uh, and that was all she wrote. Nazrat Hakparas defeated Alexander Munoz via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board, so Hakparas is a little better everywhere. Uh, landed better on the feet, dealt with the wrestling on the occasions it became an issue, and just a return to form for Hakparas after the loss in his last fight. Andrew Sanchez defeated Wellington Terman via knockout, 4-14 of the first. Uh, Sanchez really needed this kind of a performance. Uh, not only was he coming off of a loss, he hadn't finished anyone during his entire run in the UFC. He won the uh, season of the Ultimate Fighter at light heavyweight decision, decision, loss, loss. He was finished in both of those. Two decision wins, lost to Marvin Vittori. So his first finish in the UFC, and his first finish since in five years, almost exactly five years, geez. So kind of needed that, um, you know, good enough fight, such as it was. Uh, those two kind of got after it. Uh, Terman just dropped his hands and he was throwing a front kick. Keep your hands up when you kick, people. It's really important because... Uh, he did that. Sanchez punched him in the nose, wobbled him a little bit, followed up with another one, two, dropped him, done. Uh, Gavin Tucker defeated Justin Janes via rear naked choke, 143 of the third. Um, Tucker has having a good first round, and then Janes kind of clobbered him a little bit. Uh, clipped him, but was unable to really follow up. Tucker smartly was able to kind of shift levels, stop the bleeding such as it was, and uh, then in the second round came back and just started and just pummeled him. I think I gave him a 10-8 second. Then in the third, uh, times a knee very, very nicely. Uh, wobbles him with it, chases him down, hits him a few more times, gets the uh, stuffs a takedown, gets the back, uh, is able to finally secure the choke after a little bit. Uh, solid, solid performance from Gavin Tucker. Uh, Tucker's always looked pretty good, but has struggled with getting fights consistently, some of that for injury-related reasons. Uh, but the man definitely, has, he's always shown potential. He's just never really been able to work consistently enough to make any, to, to really gain any momentum. Uh, Yusuf Salal defeated Peter Barrett via unanimous decision, 230-26, 130-27, um, Zalal hit Barrett with a spinning back kick to the face in the first round. I thought we were done. Uh, credit to Barrett's toughness, but he never found a, a real avenue of success against Zalal, who just kind of picked him apart for the entire fight. And kicking everything off, Erwin Rivera defeated Ali Alkaisi via split decision 29-28. Um, not a bad fight, but... Uh, you know, just I'm just gonna say it like that. Not a bad fight. 
I'm going to change my inflection and change the entire meaning of that phrase. Uh, not a bad fight. Those two went at it. They went back and forth. Whole thing comes down to how you scored the second round. Good little fight. Uh, okay, that was... And that's it. That was the event. Thank you to everyone who read uh, live or after the fact my coverage in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. Um, I know I'm talking about... I'm there week in and week out talking about some events that just have no buzz. The UFC... There's a lot of apathy towards a lot of the UFC product because of how they choose to schedule it to just be week after week after week after week. And I'm on a, you know, website that is first and foremost a professional wrestling website. So I... And... A slightly... I mean, 411 is not a tiny website by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not huge. Uh... So I'm on a slightly smaller outlet talking about material that doesn't necessarily always have a lot of momentum behind it on a site that is primarily geared at other avenues. So intellectually, I am aware that my audience is a little bit smaller. It just, nah. maybe it's the physical pain, but it just, it just sucks sometimes to, you know, dedicate the time and energy that I do. And to, you know, and to see just so little kind of for it, but... Eh, that just happens sometimes. And, I mean, some of that's just a little bit of burnout on my end generally. The UFC product is designed to burn people out, I think. But thank you to those of you who do read, who comment, who share around what I do. I profoundly appreciate all of you people, so thank you very much, as always. All right, that will lead us into this coming event, UFC 252, the big one. Uh, the trilogy ends here, as the saying goes. Um, your main event, Stipe Miocic, freshly crowned, now two-time heavyweight champion against former heavyweight and light heavyweight champion Daniel Cormier. Phew. How do you, th what do you think about this one, huh? Uh, I, I struggle with this one a little bit. I mean, these two have had two fights, both of which were good. First one was short, but a good fight for as long as it lasted. Their second fight you know, went into the fourth round. Was another very, very good fight. Uh, with some momentum swings, some great... Uh, displays from Daniel Cormier, some great adjustments from Stipe as time wore on. It's a good fight. Uh, I suppose some of my apathy towards this fight comes from... I'm going to quote Jack Slack about this, and you can... Because I think he's correct. This might be one of the biggest, most important fights in UFC heavyweight history. These are... Two of them. These are the two most, two of the most accomplished men to ever fight in that division, right? You have Stipe, the most successful heavyweight champion the UFC has ever had. You have Daniel Cormier, a bona fide all-time great across two weight classes, squaring up for the third time in a small cage. That's gonna. I don't know who that favors actually, but in a smaller cage. I. 
I should feel differently about this than I do, but again, I'm going to quote Jack Slack here. This fight, one of the most important in the history of the division, probably go out on a slight limb here. I'd have to really think about this, but I would argue that these two represent the highest skill level that has ever fought for the UFC title between two, between both competitors, right? So I don't think you've ever had two better fighters fight for the heavyweight title than Miocic and Cormier. Possible, and again, I'm not, if you have another example off the top of your head, if you're there going, uh, you know, Velasquez and Dos Santos, okay. That's probably the only one that I think is in the running. Uh, so I'm not going to point, at a bare minimum, it is very arguable that these are the two best to ever, to this, this represents the highest skill threshold for the heavyweight title in a fight. And you can kind of sum up how this fight's going to go with a grand total of two points. One, has Cormier done anything about how his striking guard works to protect his body? And two, will Stipe Miocic remember to hit him in the body? (sighs) Daniel Cormier, uh, let me be clear about something here. Daniel Cormier, all-time great fighter. One of, when I, when I say all-time great, like, one of the five best ever, in all, in all probability, right? Two-weight world champion, title defenses of, of both titles, only, only professional losses to John Jones, maybe the best ever, and Stipe Miocic, the best UFC heavyweight champion ever, or the most successful, if nothing else. Arguably the best, right? So... He's only lost three fights his entire career. One of those got changed. I mean, he still got knocked out. But only lost three fights to two men who themselves are at the very, very top. And yet there's these very, very glaring weaknesses. Not weaknesses. That's the wrong word. There are very obvious habits in Daniel Cormier that are very exploitable. And for some reason, no one, people struggle to exploit them. I, some of that's a credit to Cormier, right? And he's aware of a bunch of these. You know, he said to John Jones, don't think you're going to put your left foot on the top of my head. And then John did kick him in the head with his left leg repeatedly. So Cormier is not ignorant of his habits. He is a little soft to the body, and this has been noticeable going back for a long time. Uh, I think Josh Barnett got him to the body a few times. Uh, Frank Mir kneed him in the midsection several times and got visible reactions out of him. You know, Jones to the body frequently to either set up other offense or to, just to hurt him. Miocic hurt him badly to the body. Even in fights he's won, it's been visible that he just does Anderson Silva, for the love of... Silva on, you know, a few days' notice after losing a couple of rounds badly, comes in and just punts Cormier in the liver, and immediately Cormier reacts badly. It's always been there. And the fact that he chooses to use uh, kind of the mummy guard, so your hand's really outstretched, to disrupt the straight punching lanes of your opponent, it just opens up your midsection. And if you're, 
look, if you don't want to take my word for this, if you want to go back and rewatch some of the fights in question, please do. But there's a lot of people who don't necessarily understand how to tell if someone is is really affected by a body shot. Because you're not always going to see them curl up into the fetal position. You have to look at what they do physically and how their strategy or what they're doing in the the cage or the ring changes. Uh, This is one of the things that you'll notice, uh, another example, the Masvidal versus Diaz fight. Masvidal was killing Diaz with those body kicks, and I know any of the Diaz fans out there are like, what do you mean? They have great cardio, they're they're tough as nails, blah, blah, blah. Just, okay, fine. I'm not saying he was about to be stopped by them, right? Watch how he was reacting when Masvidal kicked him in the body. He was moving with it. And not in the way that, like, okay, I'm going to mitigate some of the impact. He's cringing in anticipation of the blow. And anytime he got hit, especially as those kept going, you saw him stop. He'd get hit, and he'd kind of everything would kind of stop for a second. That's what that's kind of what Cormier does when he gets hit in the body. He kind of jumps to the side to try and avoid it or to go with the impact. He doesn't like it, and then he backs up. Maybe the other guy doesn't notice, and maybe he you know kind of recenters himself quickly sometimes. But look at what he does. He gets hit, he backs up, and he takes his, and he's like, okay, stop. That sucked. Okay, now we can get back to it. That's one of the bigger tells. Like, it's not just, do they fall over? It's, does the guard come down? Do they back off? Do they try to buy time to recover? Do they get hit really hard and push forward all of a sudden because I'm this is going to hurt in a minute and I need to do something else? There's a lot of... Again, those are kind of the tells you want to look for. And Cormier has never liked He's never been good about taking hits to the body. He just fought in a couple of divisions that were incredibly shallow and full of people who don't go to the body. I mean, Gustafson came within a whisker of beating him. For the record, I did score the Gustafson-Cormier fight for Gustafson. Gustafson never went to the body. John Jones did. Stephen Miocic did in their second fight. Uh, Mir did, but... Mir was overwhelmed by the wrestling as that fight just kind of wore on. He's It's just, they're, both heavyweight and light heavyweight breed headhunters in MMA. And Cormier has a pretty good chin and is good about disrupting your punching lanes. So if all you're worried about is punching him in the head, he can kind of deal with that. I mean, the man got hit by you know Anthony Rumble Johnson and got back up very quickly. He's got a chin. You know, look at what happened. I mean, when John kicked him in the head, that was full force, full force, shin to the temple, and he didn't go down. He was hurt, and John you know, then got him down and finished him, but look at the effort that had to be put in by John to finish him. Look at what Stipe did. Stipe had to hit him to the body in the fourth round and multiple times and the, to eventually kind of wear him down. He's not easy to beat at all. He's even harder to finish. Although, two of his three losses, I count the I count the second Jones fight as a loss in some respects. Two of those were by finish. I mean, it's still not easy to do. So, big question. Has Cormier addressed that? And even if he hasn't, is Stipe going... Because that was always there for that fight, and Stipe just didn't do it until the fourth round for 
reasons that are unclear. I, that's kind of the big question. <laughs> um, I know there's a lot of people that, uh, I shouldn't say a lot of people, one of the prevailing narratives kind of coming into this is, well, you know, if Cormier just wrestled the whole fight. I'm not saying that Cormier isn't going to try and wrestle a little bit more in this fight, but here's an odd statistic for you about Daniel Cormier. The man has not won a fight that got out of the second round since 2014? So just uh, hear me out here. So, okay, in 2014, he stops Patrick Cummins in a minute. Goes the distance with Dan Henderson, loses to John Jones. Then goes, uh, submits Anthony Jones. So, sorry, not since, 2000, since 2015. In 2015, he fights Gustafson to a split decision. Fights Anderson Silva, three-round fight. That's the last time a fight that went that into the third round he won was the Anderson Silva. The, uh, the Anthony Johnson rematch ends in the second. Jones rematch. He's finished in the third. Uzdemir, he finishes in the second. Miocic, the first time, finishes him in the first. Derek Lewis finishes him in the second. Miocic rematch goes to the fourth. He gets finished. Daniel Cormier is over 40. He's 41. He started wrestling when he was in the single digits old, has been to two Olympic games, and has won two UFC titles. If the man is physically not able to keep the same pace that he used to, I'm not going to blame him. But... I think at this point there's a very real question that if you can extend him beyond that 10-minute mark, how's he hold up? You know, he, uh, he was struggling in the... He still won, like, the third round, I think, in the, Miocic, in the second Miocic fight, but he was visibly struggling. He was visibly fatiguing. So I don't know that the that the longer this goes, the more it doesn't just favor Stipe in that respect. And related to that, when it comes to is he going to wrestle more, wrestling is physically exhausting. There's a, there's a line from Michael Chandler, and I tend to think it's true. And some of this is... Now, people don't understand this because I think a lot of MMA fans don't understand what wrestling is. But... When asked about it, I think Michael, Michael Chandler said, you can't wrestle for 25 minutes. You can maybe wrestle for 15. Now, to anyone out there going, but, you know, guys have, guys have been on, in top position for longer than that. Holding top position, having top position is not wrestling. Wrestling is what happens until someone concedes a position. So once you concede a takedown and you hold full guard, and the other guy's on top of you, you're not wrestling anymore. You're in a more static position. What By way of example, what Khabib does is a lot more wrestle-heavy because he is constantly working. He is constantly riding you. He is constantly hitting mat returns. That's unbelievably labor-intensive. 
if you if you have no idea how hard that is to do physically, think about how hard it is to do burpees. And that's just you with your body weight getting up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. Now start throwing in extra weight. How hard does that become? Now throw in a human who is resisting you actively every step of the way. It is physically exhausting in ways that if you've never done it, you would not believe. So do I expect Cormier to wrestle a little more? Probably. With some of his cardio considerations, do I expect him to, you know, hey, he's going to wrestle for all five rounds? No. That is not feasible. Miocic is a good wrestler himself. So getting him down at all is not easy. And keeping him there is not easy. And it's very, and again, it's very labor-intensive to do so. Is Cormier going to gamble that much of his gas tank? Because we've seen what happens to him in this fight when he gets tired. He gets finished. Ah. And then, again, there's the big question about Stipe. Is he going to have the wherewithal to find those openings, to make those openings? is a very, very good fighter. He's a very well-schooled fighter. But Stipe doesn't... Uh, to, to the best of my recollection, Stipe's not the best at adapting. He's good about game planning, he and his team. You know, look at what he did to Francis. It was a really smart fight. He dealt with the power early. He extended the fight. He faked. He fainted. He leg kicked. He made Francis miss. He made him tired. He made him pay. Similar, you know, when he fought Mark Hunt. Jabbed him. Faked him. Some leg kicks thrown in anytime Hunt would swing and miss. Get him thinking about that. Grab the snatch single leg. It's... It's a smart strategy. I don't mean to say that is not a smart fighter. Or that he's not well-schooled and well-prepared. But it took him four rounds to make the most important and potentially even the most obvious adjustment in that second fight with Cormier. I don't think he's a fighter that adjusts through various plans all that well. You get him a few looks, you get him a few ideas, and he can execute those very, very well. But if he's got to go from plan A to plan Q, or something that wasn't game planned for but is, but is clearly there... It's a little bit unclear to me how good he is at in-fight adjustments. Now, and to be abundantly clear, it, real-time in-fight adjustments are incredibly difficult. It's one of the things that makes fighters who can do them so special. Fighters like Max Holloway, like Alexander Volkanovsky, like Demetrius Johnson. Those guys adjust, Israel Adesanya, those guys adjust in real-time to what you're doing. That is remarkable. It is unbelievably difficult. So I'm when I'm saying this about Stipe, bear in mind, I am holding him to a very, very... I am talking about a very, very high standard, a very high skill. 
but you are the champion, you are the most successful champion in this weight class this this promotion has ever had. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to impose some of those considerations. So as far as picking a winner, I don't know. These two are very evenly matched. I do kind of lean Stipe again a little bit, I think, but it's it's barely. I would not be shocked to see Cormier win. I would not be shocked to see him stick to his word, win and retire. Uh, but, you know, I now watch this fight end in some kind of controversy, right? We're set up. It's the end of the trilogy. It's, you know, two of the best heavyweight champions that the UFC's had in Cormier, even with only one title defense, probably does fit into that discussion, such as the nature of the UFC heavyweight division and its history. And watch it end in a no contest, or a draw, or (laughs) something like that. Um, Just because, hey, why not? Uh, So, again, my pick, for whatever it's worth, I do pick Miocic, but very, very close, and one of the few heavyweight fights that I look forward to intellectually, in some respects, even if I'm not excited you know, if it doesn't kind of grab me by the guts and make me go, yes, I can't wait. I can. I am interested in this fight and its outcome and what it means. All right. Uh, the co-main event is a bantamweight fight. Sean O'Malley uh, taking on Marlon Vera. This is a good fight. Vera is coming off of a loss to Song Yudong, but had a good winning streak before that. Marlon Vera is a very legitimate opponent. He's a very legitimate fighter. His UFC record is... It started off a little bit iffy, but then he kind of found himself. He had a couple of early setbacks, but recently, his only losses are John Lineker, Douglas Silva, Deandraj, and Song Yadong. Those are all tough fighters. (laughs) And he represents easily the stiffest test of O'Malley's career to this point. Um, I do kind of favor O'Malley. I think Vera is... I won't be surprised if Vera wins. But I think he's a little bit susceptible, especially when he starts kicking, his hands drop. And O'Malley's good. O'Malley has power. Uh, which is kind of a rarity to have real power at bantamweight. O'Malley's got some good power. I... I think Vera will have bits of, will have some success, but I think ultimately he's gonna succumb. Um, but it's a good fight. It's a it's a very very good measuring stick for O'Malley. If he blows, if he finishes Vera, because Vera Vera hasn't been finished uh, at all in the UFC. His debut was a loss to Marco Beltran decision. Uh, his, the Davy Grant loss decision. So if O'Malley is able to put him away when John Lineker, Douglas Silva de Andrade, and Song Yadong all couldn't. Uh, oh, for the record, that Yadong fight was up at uh, featherweight. So at bantamweight, Vera hasn't lost since uh, he's got a, what, five-fight winning streak going at bantamweight? Yeah. So if O'Malley can be the first guy to stop him... Be the first guy ever. Yeah, 
Vera's one loss outside the UFC was also a decision. If he's the first guy to stop Vera, that's a big deal. Vera is a tough opponent. So, going to have to see how that plays out. Uh, there's a heavyweight fight. Junior Dos Santos against Jarzinho Rosenstreich. Rosenstreich coming off of that loss to Ngannou. Um, that was a rough one. Um, I mean, look, I... I like Junior Dos Santos, but I think he's washed. I think he's just a little bit washed at this point. Rosenstrike, not so much. Both men are strikers, and if Rosenstrike doesn't mind his P's and Q's defensively, Dos Santos could get him. But Dos Santos never really fixed his... Uh, never consistently fixed his ringcraft issues... And believe it or not, he's the kind of striker who only really shines against stri- against people who don't know how to strike, or who are like demonstrably worse than he is at that. There's, this is one of those things that a lot of MMA fans don't really think about. They see someone, you know, like Chuck Liddell or Junior or Joanna. Uh, I mean, Joanna's a slightly different case, but hear me out. Someone who comes in and is a good striker but who excels and is able to kind of showcase the breadth of their talent, not by fighting other strikers, but by fighting people who don't know how to strike. You know, the When Junior has fought good strikers, that's when he, even in some victories, he struggled. Right? The Mark Hunt win. I mean, he got a spectacular knockout, but Hunt had a lot of success in that second round. Then you know, he fought Alistair Overeem. Alistair. Uh, a better striker than Junior. Knocked him out. The rematch with Stipe, obviously didn't go... Then, you know, I mean, okay. Junior's a better striker than Francis Ngannou, but his chin is so gone at this point that it doesn't matter. And then he... And then, you know, the Blades fight as well. Just, he couldn't uh, do much to stop Blades' offense. But he's he's a guy who tends to shine when he's fighting someone not in his skill set rather than... Someone who is, and, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, Chuck's a great striker. Chuck is a pretty good striker. But look at the guys who gave him problems, and a lot of them weren't the, you know, ground-based wrestlers or submission artists. It was the guys who were like, yeah, okay, I'll strike with you, and I can strike with you. Uh, you know, a lot of people thought Joanna was going to buzzsaw through some, uh, uh, Valerie Letourneau, I think it was. And that was wh- because she just massacred uh, Carla Esparza and... Jessica Penne, these poor women who just had no idea how to strike with her. Letourneau wasn't ever really a threat in the striking, but she knew how to strike, and as a result, we kind of got a five-round decision rather than a buzzsaw. And Junior's a little bit like that. If he's fighting someone who really knows what they're doing in the striking area, he doesn't really have a plan B, you know? He's not been good about using his grappling offensively very often. And at this point, again, he's also chinny. I, I think Rosenstrike probably takes this. All right, we have a bantamweight fight between John Dodson and Marab Dwalishvili. Um, Dwalishvili's entire game is wrestling-based. And Dodson's hard to get down and hold down. Not impo- Again, not impossible. Not impossible to beat. But... 
that's not an easy thing to accomplish. If that's Dwalis Freely's primary off uh, game plan, if he doesn't have something to mix things up, I do tend to think uh, he might be in for a longer night. Um, that said, I am I'm still going to pick him. Uh, I I struggle to pick John Dodson at this point, but Dodson has power. He's hard to get a hold of. He's hard to control. And that's, again, that's kind of what Dwalis really does. Is control or a bunch of wild, spinny stuff. And Dwalis really's pace is kind of the big thing that we're going to have to pay attention to here. Because Dodson doesn't have the world's greatest gas tank. Now, some of that is relative to fighting at flyweight and bantamweight, where some guys are inexhaustible. And then even amongst... Bantamweights, Dvalis really has absurd cardio. Look at how many takedowns that man gets and how much wrestling he does, and remember how hard that is to do. The, then watch how he fights. Uh, his gas tank and his motor are something. So, I'm still going to pick Dvalis really, but I won't be shocked if Dodson pulls this off. And kicking off the main card, we have Magomed Ankalaev and Iwan Kutalaba. This is a rematch. These two fought before with Ankalaev scoring a TKO that uh, a lot of people thought was early, uh, including Kutalaba. Um, I'm still picking Ankalaev. He's only had the one loss, and it was kind of a split-second lack of focus against Paul Craig. He's won four in a row in the UFC now. He's finished three of those. Um, yeah, I'm still picking on Kalaev, and I still kind of expect a degree of uh, insanity because Kutalaba is a wild man. Alright, on the prelims, Jim Miller, God bless him. Jim Miller's still cooking along. Um, Miller, last one, he submitted Roosevelt Roberts' his last time out. Miller might be able to get... I think he might be able to tie Joe Lozon for most uh, stoppages in the UFC lightweight history if he gets one here. I mean, he's third on the all-time wins list in UFC history at 21. He has the most wins in lightweight history at 19. Uh, I think he's tied with Cerrone at the moment again for most fights in light in UFC history at 35. He might. This might be the first time he pulls ahead of Cerrone in a while. Uh, he's he got again, he's the winningest lightweight in UFC history. He's got the most submission wins in lightweight history. He's Jim Miller's a legend. He's fighting Vince Pichel, and this could be a very tough fight for him. Vince Pichel is Vince Pichel has a grand total of two losses in his entire run in the UFC. He was suplexed by Rustam Kabilov back in 2012. And then he lost to Gregor Gillespie in 2018. And that's it. He is a tough fighter. I'm going to pick Miller. Uh, just because I kind of do at this point. I just picked Jim Miller. Uh, but that's a pretty good fight. There's a women's strawweight fight. Ashley Yoder will fight Livia Hanata Souza. Um, Souza coming off that Brianna Van Buren loss. That was a... When I say a bad loss... That just murdered her momentum. It was not a good performance. Uh, by contrast, Ashley Yoder um, doesn't have a great UFC record. She's like two and three. This is this is probably Souza's fight. 
Heavyweight Chris Daukas and Parker Porter are going to square off. Uh, probably Daukas there. Another women's strawweight fight, Felice Herrig and Verna, uh, Verna Jandihoba. Uh, Hoba's gone 1-1 in the UFC. Herrig, Herrig's been out for a while, hasn't she? Yeah, Herrig hasn't fought since October of 18. Almost two years. Uh, she had an ACL, in, had an AC, ACL injury, okay. Yeah, that could track. Um, feels like the UFC's trying to give Herrig a very winnable fight, but, I don't know, Herrig has dubious cardio. Uh, I don't know. Look, uh, women's strawweight is a very, very good division, especially at the top, but it peters out, and Herrig's kind of more towards the lower half of that. Then our early fights, um, Herbert Burns will fight Daniel Pineda. Let's see, Pineda, he's been in the UFC before, hasn't he? Yeah, did not have a good run the first time, jeez. Went uh, three and four. Yeah, and just one and four in his last five. Was cut, bounced around Bellator, Legacy FC, Fury, had a couple of no contests in the PFL. Uh, okay, he had two wins on the same day, but he those were overturned after he popped for some kind of banned substance. Probably go with Burns. And then TJ Brown will fight Daniel Chavez. Yeah, I'll go with Brown, but that could go either way. And potentially a heavyweight fight between Jorge Gonzalez and Isaac Villanueva. Low-level heavyweights. Who cares? Uh, yeah, that's it. That's UFC 252. That will be Saturday. Big main event, real, and a, you know what? That's a solid main card. You know, you've got a, you know, on paper one of the best, the two best, two of the best heavyweights ever in the UFC, if not the two best. You've got a somewhat relevant heavyweight fight below that. You've got Dodson and Wallace Freely, which will be action if nothing else. You got O'Malley and Vera, and even on Kalayev and Kutalaba. It's hard to imagine a way that that particular fight goes boring. So, that's a solid main card. It's a pretty solid main card. Alright, uh, and again, I will have coverage in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania on Saturday, so please stop by, say hello if you can, I appreciate it. Please, if you can't do it live, uh, there is my full report after the fact. Give that a read, at least give it a click. Like, share, comment, whatever you do. I, I appreciate all of that. Uh, okay, let's move on to the news of the week. Uh, okay, let's start here. Uh, we have our... F Davison Figueredo, UFC flyweight champion, has his first title challenger. And it's going to be Cody Garbrandt. This is set for UFC 255. Um, I've seen a lot of... I've seen some mixed response to this. Here's my take. Is it is Cody Garbrandt a deserving challenger at flyweight? Not really. He's never fought there. Is he stepping over anyone? That's a little bit dicier, 
But, I mean, on the one hand, technically, yes. Because there are other guys in that division who have been fighting and winning. I mean, if we look at the top, we have Benavidez, Brandon Moreno, Askar Askarov, Alex Perez, Alessandre Pantoja, Juicier Formiga. I mean, Formiga beat Davison Figueredo. He's the one loss on Figueredo's record, but Formiga had a loss recently. Um, Pantoja was maybe on track, and then he lost to Askarov. You have Brandon Moreno. Uh, you have Kai Kara France. You have guys there who are technically being stepped over. Okay, first of all, Joseph Benavides is not the number one contender. He has been finished twice by Figueredo. Neither of those fights was especially competitive in the ways that would make you think he should be the next guy up. He should not be ranked there. So you got Brandon Moreno. Who would complain about Moreno and Figueredo? I wouldn't. You have Askar Askarov, who uh, is a really interesting story, actually. The man is deaf. Uh, I think he competed at the Deaf Olympics, right? Uh, in wrestling. I want to conf- I, I want to confirm that very briefly because I think that's cor- correct. Um, yeah. Yeah, he won a he won a gold medal in 2017. Then took bronze in the in the Deaf Wrestling World Championships. Uh. Yeah, the uh yeah, he is um I don't think you know, I think he's listed as he's not like white noise completely deaf, but he can only hear about 20% of the sounds most people can, so he is very deaf in that respect. Uh yeah. Uh so point being, Askarov's a, a certainly a very interesting story and and you got the win over Alessandre Pantoja's last time out. Here's the problem. And this is a problem primarily of the UFC's own making. If you look at the flyweight rankings, when we get down far enough, we have Tim Elliott at 11, Harley and Paiva at 12, Jordan Espinosa at 13, David Dvorak at 14, and Amir Albazi at 15. Dvorak and Albazi, I think, have less than five fights in the UFC. Um, they probably have less than five fights in the UFC combined. The UFC gutted this division. They took everyone that had been in a fairly high-profile spot, and most of them got cut. Then, during the time when they were kind of hemming and hawing about this division, when they should have been trying to build up new guys, they didn't I I I can't I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019 I think it was 19 I did the math I like I checked every UFC event and they had like four they only had like five men's flyweight fights on the main on main cards on in all of 2019 it was 19 or 18 I can't remember which one Oh, and of those five, I think two or three of them featured Joseph Benavides. Every other fight in the men's flyweight division in all of 2019 was prelim fodder. And I think if you went back to 2018, 
So whichever year I am in, whichever year I'm I'm referencing, the other one has basically the same trend. Over 90% of all flyweight fights on the men's side of things took place on preliminary cards with limit, and some of those were like early prelims. The UFC actively diminished the visibility of this division and the people in it. So now, yeah, there's Brandon Moreno, there's Askarov, there's Perez. Uh, I, I mean, Askarov is beaten. I think both. Uh, I think he did he beat Perez, or is that the guy he fought to a draw with? It was Moreno he fought to a draw with. He hasn't fought Perez. So you've again, you've got Formiga. You've got you've got guys here who are good fighters, who have been working their way up. But there is the business side of the fight game to consider. And the reality is the UFC has done such an unbelievably piss-poor job of promoting this division, not, not the champion, the division. They have done an unbelievably bad job about building up people in this division. And this is a years-old issue. This goes back to... This was a problem that Demetrius Johnson had early in his title reign. The UFC would keep flyweights, for the most part, on preliminary fight cards. Then somebody would string together a couple of wins, and they would be plucked from the fight pass prelims to main card, main or co-main on a pay-per-view or a big Fox card, and nobody knows who they are. Then as soon as they lost, they're right back to obscurity. You can't build a division that way. You just can't. You have to get the rank-and-file fighters exposure on big platforms to try and build things up. They haven't done that. They haven't done that for years. Oh, and just incidentally... Anybody that says, what about that season of The Ultimate Fighter can The Ultimate Fighter had meant nothing for about eight years before that season. It it didn't mean anything. I get that if you want to say this was indicative of the UFC putting forth some effort. Okay, they didn't have to do that. That's true. The fact that they said, hey, The Ultimate Fighter will be a viable vehicle is laughably ignorant. If, that, if that's true, laughably ignorant of the circumstances around that show. Laughably. No one cared about that show. Not just the flyweight season. No one cared about the Ultimate Fighter and hadn't for years. Let me stress that. A number of years. Not like a year. Like five years. Six years. It didn't matter. It was something, and it, again, it was something. It wasn't nothing. But if that's the only idea they had, that's a bigger indictment of the UFC's promotional vehicle than pretty much anything else I can think of. They just haven't built the division. They haven't invested in any fighters, apart from Joseph Benavidez. They haven't given them... And again, I'm not talking about, hey, let's main event a card with these guys. Okay, If you're not willing to do that, even then okay... Kai Kara France couldn't get on the main card 
of an event in his home country of New Zealand. Think about that for just a second. Kai Kerner fronts bright prospect at flyweight. Native New Zealander. The UFC goes to New Zealand, and that guy can't get on the main card of an event in his home country. That's a throwaway fight night event. That's how little the UFC cares about this division. So you have potentially deserving contenders from a purely meritocratic standpoint, but you have no one that anyone approximating the casual fan even knows exists. And then you have Cody Garbrandt who says, hey, I wouldn't mind going down. I was going to try this against Demetrius before before I got chinned by TJ Dillashaw twice. How about now? Of course the UFC is going to say sure. Cody Garbrandt is a known prof- is a known commodity. He was champion. He featured prominently on some high-profile events, and the UFC put a fair bit of effort into promoting him. They gave him television spots. They gave him he got interviews, he got airtime. He had that great story about uh his uh, little friend Maple, who you know, survived cancer. Like, the UFC put some effort into that guy, and to be fair to Cody, he rose to those occasions. Effort was made. He's a known commodity. He's he's gonna Q-jump. And I just said, I like Askar Askarov as a fighter, and I like his story. But if all we're looking about is the cold, hard reality of what the marketplace and the fans want and what the UFC is going to do to try to cater to that, you have a former bantamweight champion who is well-known against the deaf guy from Russia who doesn't speak English. I'm... I may not like that reality. You may not like that reality. But that is reality. So... I can understand it. If I thought this was going to be kind of a stopgap while the UFC did try to build this division, like, hey, let's get, you know, let's get Askarov and Brandon Moreno in a number one contenders fight under that fight. Right? That'll be on the main card of this pay-per-view. Or, you know, let's get, you know, let's get some, let's get some of these guys visible fights on pay-per-view main cards to try and build some momentum, to try and get some of these guys you know, get them known. And, but I have no faith in that because I don't think they're going to. They have no history of doing that. And I do also kind of wonder what happens if uh, Garbrandt wins. Is he going to stick around? Is Garbrandt going to say, yes, I will be flyweight champion. I wish to defend this title. I mean, there's a very, if he does, if Cody Garbrandt actually sticks around flyweight as champion, fighting flyweights, he will actually be the guy that saves that division, not Henry Cejudo. If Cody Garbrandt, with all of his visibility, and even on the three-fight losing streak that he was on, getting violently finished in all of those, again, still a fairly high-profile fighter, if he's willing to commit to that division, he might be the one that actually turns it around. Uh... Wouldn't really surprise me. If he's going to win that and go, yeah, I'm going to leverage this to try and get a bantamweight title shot, uh, I want no part of that. Bantamweight has 
two to three viable contenders that are not Cody Garbrandt. I don't need someone Q-jumping in that division. Look, Bantamweight has Jan as champion. You've got Aljamain Sterling, my estimation, your number one contender. You've got Marlon Marais hanging out there. You've got Corey Sandhagen. I know he had the loss to uh, Sterling, but he's still there. You've got Pedro Munoz. I, you've got plenty. You've got those guys at the top. You've got Sean O'Malley coming along now. You've, uh, I think, did they make Sandhagen and Marais? Are they signed it, or was rumored to be signed? Either way. So you've got, and look, the winner of Sandhagen Marais should be up after Aljamain Sterling, right? You've got Munoz who knocked out freaking Cody Garbrandt when they fought. Remember, somehow Garbrandt still ranked third, Munoz fifth. Freaking rankings. If I thought too hard about those, they would give me an ulcer. So we don't need Cody Garbrandt to come down, win one fight at flyweight, bounce back up, and leave flyweight on the chopping block again. Uh, if he if he's going to commit to this division, he might be the one that saves it. That's kind of the point there. Or he gets knocked out again by... And to be fair, that would be a very, very big win for Figueredo. Like, people know Joseph Benavidez, but Benavidez was always kind of a bridesmaid, never a bride. You know? Uh, by contrast, Garbrandt reached the mountaintop. And did so with a lot of publicity. If Figueredo starches him, that's a, that's a very, very big win. Um, UFC 255 will also feature the women's flyweight title fight between champion Valentina Shevchenko and Jennifer Maya, who earned that fight by uh, taking out uh, Joanne Calderwood. So, those are the two announced fights. Uh, that will be November 21st is the date selected for that currently. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that's all we have is those two fights. Those are quality fights. They're a little bit more on the hardcore side of things, but quality fights. Uh, yeah, so... I can I can I can understand how that fight came about even if I don't like it I'm I'm not going to sit here and be the guy that pretends the business side of fighting is not a thing it is and the UFC both the UFC and some of the flyweight fighters they there is some kind of shared responsibility here have all done a bad job of making that division visible and marketable so such is reality and you can complain about it, you can say how you want to change it, and you can work towards changing it, but it is reality at the end of the day. All right, uh, let's see, what else? Oh, uh, the UFC had some house cleaning, sort of. Uh, let's see. A few fighters were... Uh, uh, the UFC cut a few fighters, Ray Borg and Eric Spicely, to be specific there. Um, for Spicely, that really sucks. Uh, sucks for Borg, too, but... Uh, Spicely withdrew, had to withdraw, uh, he had the medical issue related to his weight cut that, according to him, was because this was his first time cutting weight while on antidepressants, uh, which he now has to take after the 
head trauma incurred in the Duran Wind fight. Um, Spicely might make it back to the UFC. Borg, I think probably not. Um, I think the UFC just has been perpetually frustrated by Borg. And some of that is not his fault. Some of that is. And between flyweight, where he struggled to make weight and the UFC doesn't care about anyone, and bantamweight, which is just an absurdly competitive division, he's just in between a rock and a hard place there. Um, Also leaving the UFC this last week, Corey Anderson, who was ranked, I think, number four or so. Um, Anderson is gone, and he is signed with Bellator, so we can all look forward to... Corey Anderson, is Ryan Bader still the Bellator light heavyweight champion, even though he's now bulked up a lot and fights at heavyweight almost exclusively? Um, Anderson's high ranking, it was an indictment on the light heavyweight division. And I don't know. It sucks when high up when top ranked fighters leave. Because it does thin the entire division. Sometimes it's a calculated pruning to help make room for new growth. Um, Given that it's light heavyweight in the UFC, new growth seems like a bit of a stretch. And profoundly unlikely. But he asked to be released from his contract, and he was, and now he's with Bellator, and I'm not going to say anything negative about the man. Um... In that same vein, uh, the UF uh, Bellator had an event recently. I don't normally talk about Bellator because they make me sad. But in the main event there, Michael Chandler knocked out Benson Henderson as the last fight on his contract, and now he is entering free agency, I believe for the second time during his Bellator stint, or he's been near free agency in the past and then wound up uh, signing an extension or a new contract before the fight actually happened. Um, there's a lot of speculation about him going to the UFC. I'm... I don't know. He might. But the pattern for Michael Chandler for the last few years has been to do the following every time his contract is nearly up. He's going into a fight... He starts making noise about how he is the toughest matchup possible for Khabib Nurmagomedov, and then uses that bit of posturing to leverage a little more money from Bellator. Uh, So I don't know if he's still doing the same thing, and we'll just stay with Bellator. If he does try his hand in the UFC, um, I'm not saying he wouldn't have success in the UFC. Michael Chandler is very good. But the U. I mean, lightweight is such a stacked division that Bellator's lightweight division is pretty darn good. The UFC's is the cream of the crop. It. He might find success. He might come in and fight three really tough Brazilians back to back and lose all those fights. That's not at all outside the realm of possibility. So I don't know, but. We'll see. He might finally make his way to the UFC. And I am I would be interested to see him fight there. I mean, he's been... Uh, you know, he struggled and was finished... I mean, he lost twice to uh, the better Pitbull. I forget which one it is. I believe it's Patricio. 
And, I mean, I think Patricio is like the best fighter in Bellator history, too. Uh, he's two-weight world champion for them. Uh, legitimately one of the... Patricio is one of, legitimately one of the best featherweights and lightweights in the world. And he kind of ran into that ceiling, but Chandler had a fair bit of success, had a lot of success in Bellator. Um, I would be curious to see him fight in the UFC again. How much success he has? Yeah, I don't know. Lightweight's tough, man. Lightweight's a really, really tough division. Okay, last bit of news here, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, Yair Rodriguez, I think they reported he broke his ankle and is out of his main event fight with Zabit Magomed Sharipov. At which point, Ali Abdelaziz took to Zabit's Twitter to raise questions and <laughs> make... Oh, God. Look, look, guys. Most... Not all fighters are, you know... Not all fighters' Twitter is solely done by their manager. Zabit doesn't speak English, man. He's not... He's not putting those out. Um, That sucks. That's a fight the UFC has been trying to make for a while. Um... I think Calvin Cater is offered to step up. Uh, I may have talked about this last week. Or it might have been mentioned last week. Either way, if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. Cater said he would like to step up. Uh, I'd be very curious to see that fight over th- five rounds. They fought over three, and Zabit won the first two and lost the third, as he normally does. How he'd do over five? It's a big question for Zabit. That I, I need to see... As a fan, I need to see him fight over five rounds before he fights for the belt. Alternatively, the UFC shoves him into the title scene anyway, and he gasses in the third, and then Volkanovski does what he does throughout rounds four and five and finishes him. Uh, I don't know. But, again, we'll have to see how that plays out. But right now, he is without an opponent for that card, and that card is now without a main event. Which card is that? Um, let's see. Um, sorry, loosely related. Uh, Pedro Munoz and Frankie Edgar got moved to main event the card on August 22nd. Um, that's not the worst fight in the world, actually. Uh, the worst card in the world. I mean, there's some dub- there's some duds there, but there always are. There's some good stuff there. Uh, let's see, one one seventy six. No, that's kind of looking like an Alistair Overeem fight that's going to main event. 177. No. It wasn't a pay-per-view. It was a fight night. Was it two, Was it 178? Where the heck was it? Um... Wow, I can't actually find a reference for that. Uh, what event were they going to headline? Uh, it was going to be a 175. That's it. I don't know. Um, that card also features Anthony Smith and Alexander Rakich. It's a good fight. Alexa Grosso and Ji Young Kim is a really good fight, actually. 
So, fight, that fight card has Jeff Neal and Neil Magny, which is a good fight. Ricardo Lamas and Ryan Hall. That's a really good card, actually. Jeez. Uh, yeah, sucks. That really sucks. That was supposed to take place, yeah, the 29th. So we'll see what happens to that main event, whether they just bump up uh, Smith and Rakich or they get a replacement for Rodriguez. Uh, we'll see. I think that's everything. Let me check Twitter one more time and then see if anything crazy has happened. Nope, doesn't look like anything MMA-related has gone down while we've been recording here, so let's have a l let's get into some plugs. Uh, this Monday, actually, Mark Radlich and I over on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network are going to try something a little different. Um, it won't be a straight watch-along, but he and I are going to watch the Kentucky Fried movie together, which I did not know was a thing. And then we're going to immediately, as soon as the credits roll, we're going to record and get my live reaction to this, because Mark thinks this will be hilarious. I... We're going to... I Again, I know nothing of this movie. Mark described it to me as just a series of shorts. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to see how that goes. Uh, a couple of weeks ago... Oh, sorry. Last week, Mark Radlich and I got together for a TV party to talk about the anime series Keep Your Hands Off Isaacin. Uh, Mark and Pat dropped the latest chapter in their history of heavyweight boxing, this one focusing on Larry Holmes, who I think is probably the most underappreciated heavyweight champion boxing has had, uh, especially when we're talking about, about lineal undisputed heavyweight champions. Which covers a fair bit of ground. There's a lot of guys in that... There's a lot of heavyweight boxers who are underappreciated. Larry Holmes might be the, at the top of that list. In fact, I would probably place him there, personally. So you can listen to them talk about that. Uh, that entire series is a really good... Uh, uh, it's a really good lesson, so you can check that out. Um, let's see... I think there was something else we had coming up. I'll make sure I'm not I'm not planning too far ahead. Um, let's see. There's a chance I'll be on the upcoming there's gonna be a TV party on the thirteenth for the Netflix Star Wars War for Cybertron series. Part one will be starting, that's Siege. I'm working my way through that as a backup in case something happens to his regular guest, and given my history of being called in to pinch hit, well, you might hear me there. Might not, you might hear me. Um, later in the month, I'll be on for the one and only Ivan, apparently. And in theory, at some point next month, uh... We will have the new uh, the the new mutants will be released, so there'll be a damn new Hollywood for that if slash when it happens. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but that's where you can find me. You will uh, find me again host uh, covering UFC 252 this Saturday. Uh, 
And we'll be back here next week to review all of the action from that card and to preview the Munoz versus Edgar event that will be coming up on the 22nd. So, uh, hope to see you all back here then. Thank you again so very much for your patronage, likes, comments, subscriptions, shares, all of it. All of it that you can throw our way, we deeply appreciate it. I will see you next time. Please stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.